So, should we do this? <laughs> here we are. Yes, Let's here we are. We have roughly an hour to do this. Um, okay. So, welcome to the second spring session, recording session of the Café Compalofreire podcast. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, me and Nasril in different formats. We started the podcast format uh, last autumn. Um, and my name is Daniel. I work with outreach and education at CMOS. Uh Great to have you here, Dougald. A uh, long time friend now, we can say, of CMOS. Um, uh, you've been part of many different uh, courses, but also the Climate Existence Conference in different ways and um, different formats. Uh, you can introduce yourself a bit more. Um, and we're also here in Simmons Library, which is fun. The door is working. Uh, the people are here studying, discussing. So this is a nice way to do a podcast as well. We're, we're not in a secret room. It's an open space. Um, and hello also to the people online. Um, and this is recorded video and audio, like usual. Um, yeah. And CMS also is the Center for Environment and Development Studies at Uppsala University. And everything expressed here is... Not Uppsala University <laughs> or CMS <laughs> in an official sense, but we know that. Um, okay, uh, and Dougal, maybe best you introduce yourself. Uh, you have a long bio online, but yeah. maybe there's a couple of things you want to say and add to what I said. Well, as you say, uh, CMS, where we're meeting, is uh, a place that I have a great sense of friendship with. It's, it's the corner of academia that I feel most at home in. I'm a writer, a thinker, and been at least partially responsible for creating a number of organizations, including the Dark Mountain Project and including a school called Home. Um, but I do most of my work independently or in small, intimate, domestic scaled convivial institutions that are small enough that we can all sit around a table and share a meal together and so often in universities I feel a bit like a fish out of water um, but CMS has always felt to me like it sits on the on the boundary between the institutional world of universities and the convivial world in which I um, swim and think and write and talk and laugh and share food and um, so it's a place where I, I feel at home. Uh, I suppose the other thing to say about my work is um, last year I came out with a book called At Work in the Ruins, Finding Our Place in the Time of Science, Climate Change, Pandemics and All the Other Emergencies and among many other things I write a little bit in there about um, some of the uh, time I spent with Gustavo Esteva and the influence that he had on my work. So it's great to be here with somebody else who knew Gustavo and to be in conversation and honouring his, his memory today. Great. Um, and the title also, uh, This is a Time of Barbarism, is from a recent video. He passed away a couple, uh, two years ago, I think, but it was from 2000 or 2001. So that's also online, and it's also on the post that we made about the event, if you want to see Gustavo and have him speak um, as part of that event as well. Um, okay, um, Asril, 
you want to briefly introduce yourself as well? <coughs> briefly is a big thing to say when you are 82 going to 83. <laughs> so Shorter than short. short. <laughs> so 82 seconds. Um, I can identify fully with what you express about Samos and a place to be um, oneself and still contribute to the little drop in the ocean we can contribute. My background is first as an agricultural engineer. I was part of the Peruvian student movement. A bit like Gustavo, I worked in like public universities. I was advisor to the Minister of Agriculture in Agrarian Reform. It was a transformative moment in Peruvian political history. Um, and then um, I moved following <coughs> my interests in different disciplines. So sociology, let's say, Uppsala University, and now I'm continuing with something in Spain along the lines of agroecology and uh, sustainable development. Uh, I've been an activist throughout my life and I've been privileged to be able to have one foot in these spaces, academic spaces, in the interstices sometimes, like Samos, sometimes more in the center. I've been chairman of the Department of Anthropology and Sociology in Mexico and so on. Um, I've been part of the World Social Forum. I'm part of GTA that Gustavo created and in contact with Ashish Kothari and Samos then is beginning uh, kind of together working there. I write poetry and publish some poetry and we edited a book here at Semos uh, with Emerald Publishers on transformative research and higher education. And it sold so well, even though it was bloody expensive, that they are going to launch the paperback edition next week. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <coughs> That's short, good. Short and, uh, and also poetry is the theme for next, next session we have, March 21st, World Poetry Day. And that's a poetry circle, so we don't have like a star poet coming in. It's everybody sharing their own or somebody else's poetry in a circle. Um, so that will be fun in a couple of weeks. Um, okay, we should dive into uh, Gustavo Esteva uh, and his life, uh, what we can learn from him. Uh, and we put this concept of the politics of hope in there as well in the title. But there's many ways uh, and many different paths we can take with this. Um, who feels like starting? Because I'm thinking also how you came across Gustavo, Gustavo Esteva's work. Um, you met him, um, but also the impact and influence on your thinking and, and the work that you do. Maybe you can start, Dougal, and then we can sure. switch over to you, Asriel. I <coughs> remember very clearly meeting Gustavo for the first time. It was December 2007. I had found out two weeks earlier that there was a gathering happening in Cuernavaca, Mexico, to mark the fifth anniversary of the death of Ivan Illich. 
And I had never met Illich, but his work had been very important to me. I borrowed some money from my parents, booked a flight, showed up in Cuernavaca, didn't speak Spanish, didn't know anyone else who was there. And this this gang of Illich's surviving friends and collaborators have adopted me out of their sheer <laughs> curiosity about this young English guy who had made this journey to come and join them. Um, and Gustavo was such a powerful presence within that circle. Obviously, we were on his home ground in Mexico. I, I remember these bright eyes and the nose and the, the, just the, the sheer energy of the man. And then a couple of years later, you know, so then I was, I was there for a week and I got to spend some time with him then. A couple of years later, he was coming to London and I saw him speak at a place called The Hub in Islington that was a sort of centre for social entrepreneurs and innovators in London. And I saw him completely polarise this room full of people, many of whom I knew, because his message was so outrageous to some of them that they got really angry um, because he was very much, you know, of the, cut from the same cloth as Illich. You know, Illich gave this famous speech called To Hell With Good Intentions, where he told this kind of white North American audience, you know, um, don't come to Mexico to help. You know, if you have to go somewhere and help, have the decency to do it in inner city Chicago where when people tell you to fuck off, you'll understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, Gustavo was kind of coming with the same message from the global south to this community of well-meaning, mostly pretty privileged people in London. And there were a few of us who were already very in tune with what he was talking about. But there were a lot of other people for whom this was outrageous. So we laughed quite a bit together at that session and then I had the chance to go a couple of times in the years that followed and spend some time and record some conversations with him at his home in the hills outside of Cuernavaca and so you know I didn't I didn't know him as well uh, as lots of people did but he had a lasting impact on me partly because he was a living connection to two of the people whose work had been absolutely formative for me. On the one hand, Ivan Illich, and on the other hand, John Berger. And he was friends with both of them. But also Gustavo's own thinking and his, his stories, his, the directions in which he took the, um, the work where he was in conversation with Illich and with Berger were very important to me. And that framing that he and Madhu Suriprakash offered in the 90s, they wrote a book called Grassroots Postmodernism. I've come back to that again and again. And when, when John Berger died, I wrote about him and I said, you know, he was the great European representative of grassroots postmodernism, of a postmodernism that doesn't emanate from seminar rooms in Paris or London or Chicago, but that was formed out of a kind of a retreat from the failure of the hopes of 1968 that led into the hills 
and into dialogue with peasant and indigenous cultures and therefore into a, a rethinking of the legacies of Marxism without the kind of um, industrial narrative of progress that had been integral to mainline Marxist thought. Um, and so, you know, Gustavo in his connections to Illich and Berger and also to the Zapatistas and in the framing that he and Madhu offered of grassroots postmodernism, for me helped to crystallise a map on which I can locate a lot of the thinking, a lot of the work that has mattered most to me and helped me find my bearings in the, the strange times that we're in. So that's, that's a bit of how I, how I met him and what, what he, some of the things that he meant to me. Mm. Yeah, and it should be said also before I let you in, Nasril, that, that even Illich and, and I think also Gustavo Steva and a couple of other, mostly men, were mm. important in the or formative for Siemens also. When Siemens yes. started, Wolfgang Sachs was part of that. Yes. And, and the, kind of, uh, the kind of systems critique, the critique of development, the critique of doing things like you're suspected, uh, yeah, kind of yes. expected to do. So, so that was also uh, formative in how Siemens also did not only become a project about sustainability in a very shallow way, but yes. also it was a critique of a lot of things on a lot of different levels. So, yes. Asril, mm. how did you come across Gustavo Esteva and, and where did you meet him? And how Mexico. Was it in yeah. Mexico. Uh, <clears throat> I moved from Peru to Mexico in 81. And we met personally in Mexico City, 85 after a big earthquake that it would have lasted seconds or one more minute would have been more devastating. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he was already working with the notion of networks, so the kind of horizontal uh, paradigm that then is part of his scope. Um, and the GTA that he was the creator, I think we keep people like Ashish Kothari, who we are in contact with, has this idea of weaving. So, uh, and, um, so we just clicked. Um, like him, I had been... Um, part of the reproduction of the developmentalist paradigm. I had taught in Mexico the postgraduate school, theories of development. Um, I have done that for now a more critical position at the Catholic University in Lima, but then inclu including things like Swadeshi, Gandhian approach to Maldevelopment, Gandhi coined the term maldevelopment, and then had a view that in, in, in the is, uh, Swadeshi. So, and it was clearly Chinese to graduate students in the Catholic University, it's an elite university run by the Jesuits. And he Esteva had Gustavo the influence from the Jesuits, from the progressive side, because you have a range in the Jesuits, the progressive Jesuits. Um, Ivan Illich, that 
you mentioned, he was a monsignor, you know, mm-hmm. almost a bishop. And then yeah, the Vatican didn't stomach him, <laughs> and he didn't stomach. And it was interesting because his background is uh, a Jewish background, Yugoslavian, and he's monsignor, and then... Um, so... And something else that we shared in the 80s, um, 70s, 80s, uh, he worked closely with uh, Echevarria, Luis Echevarria, seven, sexenio, it's called six years. And Echevarria was, even in this center for the studies of the third world, was a place of meeting. So... Gustavo was in that space, Evdel Malek from Egypt, um, Hugo Semmelman, Chilean Marxist. So so we shared this kind of progressive think tank <coughs> that was in a way not Marxist but Marxian or post-Marxist. Um, he did take from Marx his work on alienation, which is, I think, very important today. Uh, Marx's work on alienation was not published in the Soviet Union until after Stalin died, because it was an invitation to look critically at yourself. How do you become estranged Mm -hmm. from yourself? And then you can be instrumental in reproducing oppression. Um, so we met physically last time 2010 in Oaxaca we had a small international group that were going to control or guarantee that elections were not fraught the governor was called as the alchemist of. he was an international consultant on political alchemy how to manage elections. Um, so Gustavo, out of kindness or friendship, came to the group and gave us, uh, explained the situation then, and against what he and many people expected, the government lost the election for X reasons. Um, then we met uh, with uh, somebody from this network, I was telling you, Universidad de Compromiso Social in Sevilla, uh, with Vicente uh, Manzano Arondo, psychologist, we edited the book for Spanish, Spanish-speaking teachers, became a little book, uh, you could say, the, about the absurd university and the hope of the bridge between universities and social movements. And Gustavo wrote a book about his experience with the Universidad de la Vida. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. And then, last time we met was GTA, um, maybe two years ago. And I guess I was hoping to, to meet him again there. Um, and then just to complete this kind of journey, um, the book, Grassroot uh, Postmodernism, 
was quite inspired by the Zapatistas, I would say, uh, and the process still going on. And in that tradition, maybe we should meet in the future John Holloway. Mm. Uh, no, you haven't met, but you know his work. And a lecture for his students last year in, in Puebla. Uh, so, and I think by indirectly now working together with GTA, we're part of this weaving process um, as um, GTA, it's not just about problematizing the world, but looking for examples of what is working today as an alternative vision. Mm-hmm. Like Yes Magazine does the same. They're documenting, uh-huh, this works, this works. So <clears throat> instead of inviting collective hopelessness, it's it's showing that it is possible. And then what are the conditions, what are the obstacles? In that sense, hope. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean... And that's very much what the kind of context here at CMS. It sounds kind of dark to say, like uh, we're fostering individual and collective hopelessness. But <laughs> but, but I think also uh, because of what I'm thinking in this is the relevance of his work and others you mentioned in this yeah. today. Because for me, but I think also in the CMS larger CMS context, mm-hmm. it feels like a lot of the anchoring points we had, what kind of kept us in an interesting place and we kind of knew a direction or different directions. We feel like it's more now a ship floating (laughs) freely Mm. in a storm uh, where different things that I know is relevant, but I can't really place it in a relevant context. For example, like when we talk about the critique of development or critique of Western industrial societies yeah. uh, or the critique of like people wanting to come to help or the critique of research and universities that's was also touched upon. How do we how do we make sense of all of this? So I mean one of the perils of the university environment is that it can easily end up being a place where critique is treated as an end in itself rather than an unfinished process. Mm. And you know, part of the strength of what Gustavo brought from the fact that he was working, as he used to say, as a deprofessionalized intellectual, um, was an embedding in places where no one is going to pat you on the back for simply offering critique. Um, that you're actually part of one of uh, one of his texts that I know has been important to a lot of people from the 1980s was called "Regenerating People's Space." And that act of regenerating, and again, the grassroots postmodernism wasn't satisfied with deconstruction, which became the kind of um, the center of gravity of the kind of academic Parisian um, Western postmodernism, partly because it was a critique of modernity coming from movements and communities on the receiving end of processes of modernization and therefore having to be involved in inactive resistance. And you know, one of the things that I learned from Gustavo was how to give up. Because he would always tell the story of the three turnings of his life. You know, when he was very young, 
He'd been kind of caught up in the epic of development in the first wave of the American multinationals arriving in Mexico, full of promises. And he said, you know, I was swept up in that and I believed everything they were saying. And he said, but by the time I was 22, I could see clearly that the bright future for everyone that was being promised wasn't the truth of what this was bringing, that this was really bringing, you know, stuff to benefit the bosses at the expense of the workers. And so at 22, he walked away from what looked like this very successful career. He was like the youngest executive at IBM. And then he went off and joined this Marxist guerrilla group. And for the next few years, he threw his life into that. But then he said, you know, what happened was that one of the leaders in this group that he was part of shot one of the others in a fight over somebody's girlfriend. And he said, and it was a revelation to me of the violence that we wanted to unleash on society as a whole. And even though I still held with a great deal of the political analysis that we'd been operating from, I couldn't be part of that. Mm. And so then he kind of went into the institutions and worked for a good number of years within the civil service and you know, rose to a very senior position. And as I understand it, in 1976, there was an incoming government, this kind of president who was coming from a kind of left populist place who knew Gustavo well and offered him a position in his cabinet. And Gustavo turned it down and walked away. And the way he used to tell this story, it was really clear that when he said no to that, he couldn't explain even to himself, let alone to his peers, why he was saying no. Um, he said, I just knew from my experience that even with the best people in the room, the view from up there in government and what people see on the ground is irreconcilable. There is a gap. And he said, I, I didn't understand it fully, but I knew that I had to go there, walk away from that centre of power so that's what took him into the barrios, into the, um, the work that he would have been doing at the point where you guys crossed paths. And, and what I learned from that, and firstly, I identified with the experience of having to say no and walk away without being able to explain clearly why. Because that was, you know, that was my experience when I was in my mid-twenties leaving the BBC. That was the experience that Paul Kingsnorth and I shared when we started Dark Mountain. And actually, Gustavo was one of the very few people who Paul and I knew in common when we first met. Paul's first book, One No, Many Yeses, that title comes from a slogan that Gustavo came up with. And Paul interviewed Gustavo in the early part of that book so again and again in my life I've met people and we've discovered that Gustavo was the person we had in common mm. it was the same when I met Vanessa Andriotti for the first time but uh, uh, what I understood from interviewing Gustavo about about that third turning of his life was sometimes you can't explain why you need to give up on something because from where you are before you've given up you can't see what you can't see and it's only by giving up and being prepared to walk away and put yourself somewhere else somewhere that looks weak somewhere that looks a long way away from the centers of power that you can catch sight of what it wasn't possible to see from the room that you were sitting in when you made that decision and so you almost have to make a sort of Kierkegaardian leap of faith in order and I, I 
I talk about this in At Work in the Ruins. I say, you know, giving up is always giving up on something. Though it may feel at the time like giving up on everything because you only get to find out what's left once you've made that move, once you've taken that risk without a guarantee, without a promise and walked away. And Gustavo was the person who embodied that for me and who brought that into focus for me, both within his experience and my own, and then recognising it in the experience of other people who I learned from over the years. So that's one of the things that I owe to him. Mm. <clears throat> Can I follow from that? Um, as I was listening to you, I was evoking moments of rupture in my life. Like when I was chairman of this Department of Anthropology and Sociology, this private university, um, I was appointed a dean, Basilio Rojas, and I went to him and said, I don't want you to be my boss, I resign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, you know, give us some time, and then John Chance, an ethno-historian, married to Zapoteca, and uh, Gustavo's, the mother's side, had Zapoteca, and Zapoteca culture and people are very powerful mm. historically they were the ones that kicked the French the Maximilian when Bonaparte wanted to have Mexico um, so another time that I felt <clears throat> my former father-in-law I say I mean it made he not rest in peace wherever he is <clears throat> um, he offered me uh, employment at the so-called Tribunal de Contas. It's the overseer of the budget of the state of Rio. And they, are, they were paid for life, uh, a salary over the salary of an ambassador in Brazil, which is, I don't know how many thousands of dollars, to be honest. It's a colonial institution. Lula has not dealt with it. I doubt he will. Um, at the time, This guy had 20 people in his private staff in this tribunal. They are called ministers. His sisters, his daughters, former son-in-law, and Azril that said no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, then it's the inspiration of integrity that uh, Gustavo and Illich also. Mm. And something in our style that can times, sometimes is provocative. Like you even can, can come to enjoy being provocative. Too provocative. Um, so I wanted to mention a nuance between Ivan and Gustavo vis-a-vis -vis Freire because the framework here had to be with Freire. First, Uh, Freire did understand the importance of hope and he wrote about the pedagogy of hope. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a plus. And in Gustavo, there's also the message of hope. Now, Ivan and Paul disagreed radically about schools. So, Ivan Illich wrote the School in Society saying private, public, schools reproduce the system of exploitation and oppression. And Freire said, still is a trench to be fought, to be struggled. 
but they wrote the book together about this difference. I think Gustavo was more like this, boom. Um, and then, while he knew Freire, then he criticizes him on grounds that I could actually question, um, because it is true that some people made Freire, even today, like a guru, like a mantra. Mm -hmm. And then we don't like gurus, this kind of mantras. Um, but I have met people in unusual circumstances, people that had been in jail in the United Kingdom, that had been with IRA, and they found pedagogy of the oppressed that was inspired by Marx and uh, Franz Fanon also. Um, and in jail, this book gave them hope to come out, and I saw the book they wrote. If, if not, I would say maybe it was just blah, blah, blah. I met a Palestinian psychoanalyst in Ramallah that found Freire, and that book gave them hope to endure prison. So I still will link the focus of this meeting with Freire yeah. and, and Gustavo Steva, um, saying that, and then I have a, a line that has to do with um, our affective part, our emotions. Many times we disengage emotion, disenchanted, like Gustavo got disenchanted uh, with Marxism, and then because, you know, it's very categorical, mechanistic, when it's not dialectic. Uh, and then he went through postmodernism, that was an answer to this kind of mechanicism. But he was critical of Western postmodernism yes. because it was lost in diversity and it was not, in a way, saying what is common in the diversity, in the plurality. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and this is quite important because it's not enough to take in the diversity you need to weave again mm -hmm. a, a, a collective answer that is not uh, vertical to, to, to counteract things like the cultural warfare going on today that you know the far right and climate neg negativism on there so, um, you mentioned the term process, and I like that. And Freire was very keen on saying, I'm not, I'm becoming, mm -hmm. and we are becoming. And I think Gustavo is a good example of becoming, mm -hmm. because as he had a rapture, then there was a new horizon, and mm -hmm. he was willing to stop the door and go like he was director of a journal, Little Dia, who was part of the system. Jose Portillo, in Mexico they call him the dog, because he would say, I will defend the peso like a dog, and he didn't, and then they called him the dog, okay? El perro. So he was not pretending to be progressive. He had been minister of finances, and they are the ones responsible for neoliberalizing Mexico, okay? So, but he did... 
he was invited to, to work, for example, in this uh, some Stema Mexicano, the alimentos, the alimentation, the system of agriculture, uh, uh, food security yeah. with FAO. And then that's when he departed from, mm-hmm. from PRI that had been running uh, Mexico for mm-hmm. decades, mm-hmm. corrupt. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, uh, Vargas Llosa called it the perfect dictatorship or democratura, mm-hmm. democrat combining democracy with dictatorship with totalitarianism. <coughs> Uh, and we've we have a mission, almost like a curse and a mission mm. <laughs> in mm. this podcast also, to try to take the conversations, the thinking, the inspiration, all of it, uh, into something also practical or something that can be transformed mm. to yep. something mm. into the here and now, um, and not the felt or imagined or real impossibilities, but rather like what are things we can actually influence and actually things we can do. And I think you and Ed Gillespie in your podcast, The Great Humbling, you talked about populism and you talked about uh, the work that you do, Dougald, uh, near to home and the people where you live sure, and and the connections. But that was just at the end of the podcast. And I was like, I'm missing five minutes or I'm missing 10 minutes. This could be something uh, extended around there because that also connects to Gustavo Esteva when he kind of found himself, as we speak about, and they found his work with the peasants, with the local, moving back. I was going to say, yeah, Yeah. let's see if we can weave something together with that. So, you know, another piece of Gustavo's story, and and again, like you will know parts of this that uh, you experienced at first hand that I only know by um, hearing the story told. But um, anyone who's read... That book by Rebecca Solnit about, you know, what's it called? The the strange um, kind of dis- utopias that happen in the aftermath of mm. disasters. A paradise built in hell. Paradise built in hell, yeah. thank you. Um, so um, she tells the story of these movements in Mexico City in the era when you and Gustavo met where he was... Part of these networks from the late 70s onwards in the barrios with these kind of landless peasants arriving in the poorest areas of Mexico City, one of the really concrete practical things they were working with was compost toilets. And the government and the city authorities were trying to make this illegal because they're like, we, we want to become a developed society. In a developed society, you, you, know, you shit into water mix it with piss, send it all away, because there's this place called Away, which is always somebody else's here. And uh, so up until this earthquake hit in 1985, uh, the work that they were doing around the compost toilets was antagonising and being, being threatened by the authorities. Then suddenly you have this massive earthquake, half of a city of 20 million people has lost its sewerage system, and the thing that yesterday was regarded as primitive, old-fashioned, you know, we need to get rid of this, is the only thing left that works. And that, to me, is a paradigm for a lot of practical work and has been throughout my, uh, throughout my life. You know, a lot of the work that I've been involved in is underwritten by the thought, you know, what's worth practising today that might be the only thing that works tomorrow? 
Um, so, you know, when I was living in London and we were, um, we created this thing called the West Norwood Feast, this community owned and run street market. And I have this lovely photo of this group of people stood at like really early on a Sunday morning in fluorescent jackets on the steps of a church in the middle of this very ordinary area of South London called West Norwood. And they're waiting for a guy to turn up with a, a van full of market stalls that they're going to set up for this community-run street market. And, you know, this is not some kind of um, anarchist, money-free uh, utopia. It's literally a street market, so there's literally money and e economics involved in it. But those people are out of bed at six o'clock on a Sunday morning, not because anyone's paying them to be there, not because anyone has power over them and can make them be there by telling them they're there for their own reasons and maybe they always secretly wanted to run a street market i don't think that's it i think it's that the street market is the excuse for something else which i would you know for want of better language i'd say humans being human together people coming together for reasons outside of the logic of the market or the state and the reason i've given so much of my time to creating projects like that with people is because that is the only way that human communities have worked and lived and thrived for most of human history. And if things turn out less badly than we often fear they're going to in the times ahead, it's because we relearn the capacity or revalue the capacity that has been marginalised and trivialised within our developed societies for coming together like that to make things work. And part of what's powerful about that for me is that I get tired sometimes of spending so much of my life in rooms where you know here in Sweden where we live I can look around the room and I can go I'm pretty sure nearly everybody in this room voted for the same political party at the last general election and that political party got four percent of the vote and they it's useful to spend time within our activist ghettos or whatever but I don't want to get too comfortable with that because I also live in a place which has a population of about 1500 and lots of my neighbours voted for very different parties. I don't want to know what parties some of my neighbours voted for because we still live alongside each other and we need to find ways of making life work together. And I get more excited, actually, about, you know, the work that I'm doing where we, Anna and I have got involved with this local um, music and dance venue. It's a kind of Falkert's Park on the edge of Ostavola that's been going for, it'll be marking its 90th anniversary next year. And for all that time, it's been run by volunteers. And for a while in the 60s and 70s, when the biggest acts in the world came on tour to Sweden, they played three places. They played at the, the amusement park in Gothenburg, the amusement park in Stockholm, and at Skogsvallen in Ostavola, population 1500. So Simon and Garfunkel, Chuck Berry, Miriam McCaber, Status Quo, all of these greats of so many different genres have played in what's now my little hometown. And I am so excited by, you know, getting in a room alongside a, a guy who ran a gas station for 30 years and a carpenter and manager from the local supermarket and nurse, all of whom live, you know, within walking distance of where I live and us figuring out together how we create the next chapter in the history of this um, place that has mattered to a lot of people. You know, both because in the, in the moment, in the present tense, it's a beautiful thing to be part of, 
and also because it is part of that work of regenerating people's space that Gustavo spoke about. It's part of the work of recovering our capacity for being human together, dealing with what we need to deal with in the places where we are, rather than waiting for the powerful forces of the market or the state to come in and either solve things or make things worse. And I just, I know that we're going to need more of that capacity. Like, when the shit hits the fan, I don't want to only know the people who show up to the Transition Towns meeting, because with no offence to my friends within Transition Towns, we don't have all of the capacity and all of the skill and all of the perspectives that are going to be needed. And actually, when I look around the room at our Skogsvallen committee meeting, I think between us we would do a better job of covering all of the perspectives and being able to bring in all of the voices and skills within our community when things when times get hard as i'm sure they're going to so you know to me there is a continuity from what i learned from gustavo to what i'm learning getting involved in whatever the next chapter of the sort of folklore within the swedish context is in the place where i've ended up settling and making a home and i remember writing to gustavo in about 2015 and apologising to him because I hadn't seen him in years and I hadn't come to the last couple of things that he'd come over to Europe for that I'd been invited to. And I said, I find myself travelling um, less and less than I used to and being more focused on just being in the country where I am and the place where I am. And he said, don't apologise. Like when people like you, when people who come from where you were born start to stay home and get involved in what's needed where you are, like we might be getting on the right track. And it was a kind of reiteration of that message from, from Illich, the to hell with good intentions thing. And that mattered a lot to me. That felt like a, a kind of a blessing on having entered a different season in my life when I was no longer out kind of making these journeys to far off places to learn from Gustavo and others from, from that network and was just trying to apply the things I'd learned closer to home. Mm. <laughs> Great to listening to you bring images to me like this about not helping mm. the poor people. Um, it's a tale by Tolstoy mm. um, where the slave tells the patron, okay, you want to help me get off my shoulders? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so that, that's one image that came, came to me. Um, and then I was thinking about uh, Gandhi because Gustavo took the non-violent way uh, and Gandhi was uh, the first thing they show you when you go to Gandhi's ashrams. I was in Sevagram. They go to show you the, 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 the toilet. Mm. That was the first thing. You know, come right. there. So there might, might have been a connection there. And Maybe uh, Ashish Kothari will know about that connection. Um, as a person, as me, I would say Gustavo was bloody right that if people like you are doing what you're doing, um, that makes all the sense in the world. Because in my case, I have kind of a community in the world. Um, but like my children, grandchildren are in the States or in Brazil, far away from me. Um, 
but you know there will be a Peruvian community waiting for me and so on, but not where I live. And I had thought about transition towns, and I know at some place in Sweden works, in other places doesn't. In Uppsala, for X reasons, uh, that we could be part of the problem as well. Because I like the idea of transition towns, but it has to be rooted the way you are rooted in in community. Uh, we have conversed about this Yes magazine. And the former editor is a very dear friend, Sarah Van Gelder, and she wrote a book, The Revolution Where You Live. It's like, that's... so. So that's where I live. Then we have an activist group confronting Uppsala Hem, um, because Uppsala Hem, even though it's a municipal uh, company, is worse than the market. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, um, um, so we have Fridays for the Future. Then it's part of my Friday community, where we try. Semos at one time was very important as a platform for the Uppsala Social Forum because we needed a platform and Semos kind of offered that. Um, and then we were able to actually link most of the movements in Uppsala. Mm. Peace movement, everything. Um, and this is again needed today. Today we are fragmented in different things. So while the need is there, then you will need a concerted effort to make that meeting place again. Um, So, but it will need to be inspired and fed by your kind of existential, you know, you mentioned Kierkegaard, the leap Mm. of faith, something like this in, in place. Um, so in a way it's how to weave both and one thing that came yesterday and also from the meeting that was by the political ecology of the far right uh, a month or two months ago mm-hmm. uh, that we might need as kind of a reflection for this meeting as well a kind of think tank to be able to read the context and be able to respond uh, with positive examples and not just good intentions. Yes. But that could also be said to be a community. I mean, think that works for me. And we had an old idea of a think and feel tank to make <laughs> it a bit more quirky. But then again, gathering in community uh, and, and also welcoming all sorts of people does not our headlines and the framings I put on things sometimes is not always the big open door you want. We need different languages. We need different communities. I remember my dad saying this to me that he realized when he was quite young. And, you know, my dad spent uh, his working life um, from the age of 30 onwards as a a minister in the United Reformed Church. Um, So I grew up around churches and you know, community is a big part of that. And I remember him saying that he realised when he was quite young that community is a good thing 
It's best to have more than one. Mm. It's best to belong within more than one community. Because if you only have one community you belong to, then you're very vulnerable. And you know, when there is a tension between your belonging within community and your expression of the truth of you and of what you're able to see, then it's a lonely position to be in. Um, and so in multiple ways, both, you know, I, th- I think we need both our, and Gustavo was always very clear about this, that we need both our local belonging and our connectedness over distance. We need, and we need different languages according to what context we're in as well. So, you know, the Transition Towns group is a, is a good thing. I'm a big fan of uh, Transition Towns. It's just if we get stuck in thinking that that or anything else is the only type of context in which the work needs to be done or in which we need to, to gather. And I'm thinking about, you know, what you're speaking about in terms of the far right. I'm thinking about something that Tim Morton said in this session that we did together yesterday. He said, we cede far too much ground to the far right. Um, and he was talking actually quite specifically from his own position um, in the American context, saying we cede the ground of theology, we cede the ground of faith, we cede the ground of God to the far right. Um, and, I, and, and that's a mistake. And that to me is just in one example. We cede the past, we cede tradition to the far right. We let them claim to be the representatives of tradition. One of the things that I loved about Gustavo was he would always say, in Mexico, we have a great tradition of changing our traditions traditionally. <laughs> you know, he, uh, I, I, quote, you know it, I quote Gustavo so often in different contexts. That's one of those lines of his. He was so quotable. And, uh, you know, and part of why I keep coming back to that one is because it just it's the nail in the coffin of modernity's imagined other of timeless tradition. You know, modernity, on the one hand, consists of this addiction to the new. I always say, you know, my definition of modernity is it is that window in time and place when it seemed natural to treat our proximity to the future as our defining feature, the best and most important thing about us. And as that began to feel absurd or problematic, then this talk of postmodernism of various flavours crept in because the future ceased to be a vehicle of hope and became a source of anxiety from the 70s onwards in more and more contexts. But, you know, on the one hand, modernity was addicted to the future and the new, and on the other hand, it imagined this other thing called timeless tradition, which is very bound up with the way in which you know, modernity imagined everybody else to be living in a state of nature. You know, European philosophers spent 200 years having these big debates about the state of nature. And I know that, you know, Graeber and Wengro have, you know, made an important point about how far that was actually inflected by things that were being imported from encounters with indigenous thinking in North America. And there's truth in that. But nonetheless, you know, that entire framing, that entire debate missed the obvious point, which is that what our ancestors encountered when they crossed the Atlantic was not people who were living in a state of nature, but people who were living in a state of culture, people who were living in other cultures, other histories, that we were so you know, arrogant and ignorant 
that we didn't even know how to learn from. And very, very belatedly, late in the day, there is now a widening awareness, at least in the circles that we spend our time in, of the need to listen to what people have been trying to tell us for 500 years from the other end of those encounters. And Gustavo, for me, was one of the, one of the people I got to know, you know well enough that I was really able to hear and learn from his stories as an as an ambassador for someone who could speak from that 500 years of experience and you know and all the cost of that you know he would say when he was a child his mother was indigenous and his father was a white mexican and his mother wouldn't let her own mother enter the house through the front door or speak her native language to her grandchildren and he said, you know, because my mother genuinely felt that the best thing that she could do for her children was just, yeah, to spare us the stigma of indigeneity. Um, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> the most influential uh, anthropological school of modernization using Marxist language was you need to transform the peasant into a proletarian to make the proletarian revolution. Yes. Manuel Aguirre Beltran. That was the main line. Mm. Um, so that was Marxist modernization, kind of. Um, I'm just doing free association. Mm. Um, there was a socialist motto, uh, which was uh, barbarism or socialism. Mm. Um, so today we have techno-barbarism. Mm. Socialism doesn't sound so good, so much so that the far right is no longer national socialists, but <laughs> the national democrats or mm. <laughs> Swedish democrats. So would we be able to frame in terms of hope, um, like techno-barbarism or communitarianism, or because... Um, something that is a crisis today is the lack of community. Mm. People are yes. uprooted, alienated, fragmented, and then they are very susceptible, vulnerable to mass manipulation, which is happening now. Yes. So, as a way to counteract this techno-barbarism, um, rebuilding of community of social cement um, something of that nature then and i'm thinking what we kind of done now and i'm the other things i'm working on one of the other things i'm working on at simis is the what we call course development and that sounds mm. very boring but it's basically coming up with new courses remixing the old ones thinking about what is missing at the university what, what are students also interested in what does the planet and the world need in a sense mm. from yeah. educated people but it's kind of like making community together mm. but it's not like we're coming from this educated pedestal down and making the community it's rather we're making it together in yeah. the local context in a sense but it's also and that goes back to your work now is also it's I, I, I get just the sense and I can't really place a rational thought thread on it but it's like it's also about coming home Yes, it's about coming when home. When everything breaks down, or not everything, mm. things are breaking down, yeah. you have a stronger need to come home. 
and be brought down to earth as well, you know, like Bayo Kamalafe says, mm-hmm. you know, we're coming down to earth, we'll not all arrive intact. Mm. And then the hope is that we can be broken in ways that have a chance of healing. But part of that being brought down to earth and being broken is the gap between the kinds of knowledge that have been privileged and celebrated and the kinds of ignorance that have been hidden, kinds of knowledge that have been hidden. I've found myself lately all over the place retelling this story from John Moriarty, the Irish philosopher who was of a similar generation to Gustavo, and I think Gustavo would have liked this story. Moriarty grew up in rural Ireland in the the 1930s, I guess it would have been. And he said, you know, in the world where I grew up, if one morning we'd woken up and everyone over the age of 14 had disappeared, those of us who were left, the 14-year-olds and younger, could have run the farms, could have run the villages. We had the skills to feed ourselves and our community and meet each other's needs. And from the lens, from the viewpoint of the university system that Moriarty then goes off into in his early adult life as a philosopher, from the viewpoint of that system, this was a world characterized by ignorance. What I see now is we're at the far end of the arc of that journey that Moriarty was such a prophet of because I see people with PhDs being willing to roll around in the cow shit in the byre and I be confronted with their own ignorance, with how little, how helpless their highly valued, expensive education has left them for the practical skills that everyone in the world Moriarty grew up in needed. And that makes me think of Berger as well, because Berger tells this story when he was this celebrated Marxist intellectual about the age that I am now, and he goes to settle in this village in the Haute-Savoie with the sort of last generation of peasants in Western Europe. And he says, you know how, how I became accepted for all that I would always be different? How I became accepted by my neighbours was my willingness to make a fool of myself by helping out when I was far more clueless than they were, but I was willing to get dirty and put in the work. And I feel like... You know, the great untold story of the moment we're in is that so much of the knowledge about the trouble the world is in, including but not limited to climate change, is produced by, held by, and spoken about by people who are also fundamentally helpless because our educations have left us so ill-equipped for, you know, the most important practical things that we rely on other people who we never meet to do. And... In a sense, that helplessness gets bundled up with what we know about and the good grounds we have to fear about things like climate change. And meanwhile, some of the people who are doing the practical work and have the practical skills are so alienated by the contempt that this system shows for their kinds of knowledge and skill that they aren't even prepared to listen to what the science is saying. And they'll say, I don't even believe in climate change. But they're nonetheless often holding the practical skills that actually give us the kinds of next steps that are going to be needed. I mean, I just read an amazing book by M.R. O'Connor called Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World, about her experiences of training as a wildland firefighter and controlled burn setter across the US. And lots of the people she's working with, you know, some of them are pretty right wing. 
some of them would say they don't believe in climate change. Most of them know how to wield a chainsaw, which maybe none of us sitting around this table knows how to do. But what you see in the process of that book is somebody being transformed by her experience of that work from a position of paralysis and helplessness in the face of climate change to beginning to have a glimpse of the strange alliances between indigenous people, working class people, lots of people whose knowledge and skills are not valued, working alongside scientists who've often been marginalised within their own fields because they're seen as heretical for the things they've been advocating, to arrive at a vision of what those landscapes in North America need in order to thrive even in the harsher times that climate change is is bringing. So those are the kind of clues and threads that I find myself pulling on and following now. Um, <clears throat> we're thinking about uh, artificial intelligence, mm. how does fits in? Um, this in line from Karl Mannheim when he wrote about ideology and utopia. He said, all innovations against what modernity would preach are bound to increase the control of the few over the many. Mm -hmm. And this is extremely the case now. We are entering this new territory mm -hmm. where less and less people, including myself, because I guess I'm trying to have my aloe plant survive in my kitchen, but uh, it's a gap in terms of, uh, as you said, people could understand the technology, the pre-modern technology, they could how it works, and then they yes. could manage. And today, it's further and further, so it's a state of extreme alienation, mm -hmm. estrangement from nature, you know, Monsanto wants to make uh, soil redundant because you could have hydroponic yes. uh, potatoes, you know, used by MacArthur, by uh, McDonald's and so on and so on. So how do we confront this kind of techno-barbarism now made worse by artificial intelligence? Um, how do we put community into that landscape? Mm. That would be... That's a perfect, and it's the perfect big size ending question. We <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we have run out of time, but this is, yeah, please. So I have a feeling that if Gustavo was sitting with us, one of the things he might say is he might talk about Karl Polanyi and the double movement and say, yes, that trajectory that you're describing, that is going on. But there is also a counter-movement happening at the same time because it was, it was Gustavo who first got me to see how, how significant the double movement in Polanyi's description of what was happening in the 19th century could be to our understanding of where we find ourselves now. Because what it does is it, it doesn't ask you to deny 
the power of the top-down kind of power project that gets most of the airtime in the story about what's happening in the world. But what Polanyi says is, you know, laissez-faire was planned, the response to it wasn't. So in the 19th century, you had this first era of free market globalization that had this rhetoric of free laissez-faire, but there was actually a a top-down power project from above. um, by the equivalent of the the kind of Davos set of its day. And meanwhile, the response wasn't what Marxism often wants to describe it as being, having a kind of coherence emerging from a unified class consciousness with a single uh, political subject of the proletariat. Actually, it was improvised from below, from different directions, from people who didn't necessarily agree with each other or work that closely with each other, but who were responding to the consequences on the ground of the destruction being brought by the laissez-faire project. And out of that gradually emerged you know, the better side of what was achieved for a while within Western modernity in terms of the social democratic projects of the, the 20th century, the trade unions, absolutely. And so in the same sense, you know, I don't give a lot of time and thought to artificial intelligence, except to be looking for, like, what are the things that are invisible to the lenses through which the people who are all hyped up about that are looking at the world? What's missing from their grasp of reality that gives us some clues to where the pockets are? You know, the shape of a pocket was a phrase that Berger got from Marcos from the Zapatistas. He said, you know, the shape of hope today is the shape of a pocket, an air pocket, a pocket of resistance. The pockets are partly the places that are just missing from the maps of power and that therefore are, you know, they don't look big enough to be taken seriously and therefore there's a chance of doing things within them that might still work when the power projects are brought down by their own internal contradictions. And, you know, it may be naive of me to to believe that that's the case, but that still is the kind of strange hope that I that I cling to, that what's worth doing today is not trying to bring down the system, but trying to build the things that will still work when the system brings itself when brings itself down or maybe the metaphor is more like a machine that's being run faster and faster so it's both intensifying and bits are flying off it at the same time and i think that's the kind of moment that we're in and therefore like building the capacity for the thing that still works the day after the earthquake is kind of the model for the the types of action the types of practice that Um, that i want to be part of can we continue we we should wrap up but if you have a comment uh, Yeah, uh, John Haraway says that today they excluded from this machine Mm -hmm. um, can take the far right or the left. Mm -hmm. And what he's observing is that with this so-called neoliberal stage, um, which creates more inequality, they excluded are moving more to the far right. Mm-hmm. This is like an observation he makes. Um, 
but yeah, we need to wrap up. Yes, mm. we need to wrap up. Well, this is to be continued another time, isn't it? Yes, and put into practice. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like always, uh, we want to show the book again. I can, I think, I can cut that into the camera and need, because this is about what you just spoke about. Yeah, how to make good runes, right? Yeah, good work, yeah. work in the ruins. Yeah. Um, mm. And also, you're coming back to Simas March 11th. I am. And that's also an open lecture. Yeah. With a long title that I don't remember at the Me moment. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> you probably sent it before, before the end of last year. It's, it's on Simas' webpage. Um, and then we are back March 21st, as I mentioned in the beginning, for World Poetry Day and a Poetry Circle, which we did last year as well. And I haven't told you yet, uh, Asril, but I found this amazing poem by Freddy uh, Fonseca, yes. uh, who was part of that session in, yes. in January last year, yes, I have uh, called book. Antarctica, uh, and yes. he has a dance piece to that. So, so all of that is also on Sam's webpage. And, and Mike, uh, judge, who was there, yeah, he has his own web, and he's doing incredibly good yeah. work. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. we're yeah racing through guests, and we're forgetting yeah. somebody. Remember, and then we have his book as well, Freddy Fonseca's okay. uh, book. So that's Fine. good. Uh, Dougal, anything on your side? Uh, you're all sorts of social media, Substack, and well, those so things. But yeah, I mean, Substack is the best place for people yeah. who want to kind of both read back into the things that I've been doing and get news of what's coming yeah. next. Yeah. So that's just Dougal.substack.com. Yeah. And is there any events or happenings on the horizon? I'm sure there. I'm sure there are. Um, there will be a new series with a school called Home coming later this spring. We haven't launched that yet. There is going to be a series of Sunday evening um, sessions on Zoom, starting on March the 10th, when I'll be in conversation with the artist and writer Caroline Ross. Mm -hmm. Um, and that will be that will be running now ongoingly. Um, I'm going to be speaking at the European Eco Village gathering in Vermland in August, giving mm -hmm. a keynote there. Uh, I think that, that's all I can remember off the yeah. top of my head. Substack, Substack. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, Dougal. Thank you, Asril. Thank you for those of you listening uh, on the other side of the screen. We didn't have time for any questions. We just rolled through this. Uh, but thank you for listening and being part of this.